Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Hello and welcome to today's Kinney interview with David Maurer. Until very recently, David has held the position of Managing Director of the Gippsland Regional Water Corporation, which is based in Victoria, Australia. And today's interview, even though it is a water corporation, we are speaking really about organics. We're talking about waste and how Gippsland Water has been very successful in taking innovative approaches to addressing organics. So we're going to start off by speaking about the waste problem that Gippsland Water was facing and how they've used integrated water management principles to resolve these challenges. We're going to speak extensively about the soil and organics recycling facility and how it's been a great benefit to the community and the farmers who live around the facility. We are going to speak about closed-loop products and the circular economy, and in particular, how to address this challenge of the gate fee, which David will speak about. Organics are a huge problem if they're not addressed properly. You can put into place some of the best sanitation programs uh, in communities, but if you're not dealing with the waste, then there's still going to be a lot of the health hazards, the, the water challenges that you face if you uh, don't have those, those projects in, in place. So hopefully today's conversation with David will help to get people thinking about different ways to recycle organic waste and create community benefits from it. With that, please enjoy this interview. My name is Karen Delfo, and here we go with David. Okay. So David, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about the SORF and about some of the outstanding examples coming out of Victoria with waste recycling. Um, I'm hoping we can start just with a little bit of an introduction, if you could talk about yourself and your background and the roles that you've had. Okay, well, um, I'm David Moore. I'm um, now formally the managing director for nine and a half years of Gippsland Regional Water Corporation. Um, before that, for two years, I was a managing director of a smaller water corporation in Victoria called Western Port Water. And bef um, before that, I've had uh, 16 years in gas uh, utilities, wholesale, retail, and I was managing New South Wales gas business for BHP Billiton Petroleum for five years. And then in New Zealand, I was a senior business manager for a national electricity um, generator and retailer. So I have a lot of utility experience. Originally, I'm a metallurgist. Um, I have a Masters in an MBA from Henley and a Masters in Sustainable Management from University of Sydney, and I'm desperately trying to finish a Master in Integrated Water Management from UQ. I'm hoping you can start by just kind of telling the story of of, of the SWARF. Okay, well, Gippsland Water has had a long-standing statutory um, obligation and entitlement to treat waste at a property of 8,500 hectares on the far east of Victoria, a property known as Dutson Downs. Um, that site has been a receival point for wastewater from, in particular, the Australian pulp and paper mill, um, in, an inland mill. 
which has been lagoon treated and then released to sea uh, on site at um, Dutson Downs. Now that uh, that's 88 kilometres between the mill and the site. A lot of recycled water historically um, with high salt content was dumped on the soils, which are light, sandy, and not particularly high quality for agriculture anyway. So the when Gippsland Water took over accountability in the mid-90s, the site was quite degraded. There'd been an ongoing strategy of upgrading the quality of the site. It's been farmed on and off for 50 years. Um, as an aside, there's also a receivable point for prescribed waste, prescribed waste in Victoria, uh, those that the Environmental Protection Authority put a particular name and ring around for concerned over both their cartage, the production cartage and disposal in particular. Now, um, that coincided, so that coincided in the early 2000s with a desire to finally deal with the environmental concern of the waste stream going between the pulp and paper mill and the Dudson site, and that's because the bottom 40-odd kilometres was an open channel, and if you've ever been around concentrated waste from a pulp and paper mill, you'd know what that's like. It's it's pretty disgusting. It's 8,500 hectares, but, wow, the, okay. but about two-thirds of it is um, either rehabilitating native bush, there's a bit of forestry gone on with pines, but a lot of it is also lightly touched um, original land because near the coast it's not it's been parks for a long long time and it's not particularly good farming land so there is a large number of endangered species down there and both flora and fauna and frequently you stumble over a rock and there's another one discovered there's um, so there is um, the wellington mouse the mint bush um, there's a whole raft of particular things, um, bellmouth frogs and stuff there that are, it's like an arc in parts of it for things that hadn't been seen in Victoria for nearly 100 years. Amazing. So there is, it has very high environmental and ecological value. Yeah. Um, and in that area, you can do all those things, uh, including waste. And effectively, um, that's, it's out of sight. Now, the the argument was the EPA said the channel had to, the smell from the channel had to be resolved. Um, Australian pulp and paper was sold to an American company called Paperlinks. Um, they wanted to make a significant upgrade because of changes in they perceived in the market. They said to the state government, we're not going to spend any money there unless you fix the EPA pressure. Because if they close it, you know, we won't get a return, so we're not going to spend any money. The state government looked at Gippsland Water and my predecessors and said, what are you going to do about it? So they came up with the two clear options of pipe the bottom half or um, treat the organics in the waste stream at the top end of the pipeline near the plant, which would remove the smell because it's the decomp the um, near the plant, which would remove the smell because it's the decomp the um, 
anaerobic decon, uh, decontamination or sorry deconstruction and dispo, um, decomposition sorry of the organics that causes the smell. So if you take those out, there's no organics, there's nothing to smell. So the choice was to do that. Um, they went ahead and designed and started building an extremely complex uh, wastewater treatment plant, one of the first in the world to deal with inland waste that way. So if they're building that, um, what are you going to do with all the biosolids? You can't just dump them. So we had a the when I arrived, we, it was recognised that they're going to be having forty five to fifty thousand tons of biosolids suddenly appear, and you start to run out of holes in the ground to fill up with it. So my view was, um, well, what can we do to turn this into a useful product? Because I have a personal philosophy that if you have a problem, don't try to just don't try to fix it, try to turn it into a strength because the return on investment is so much better. So the question was, well, how, you know, what can you do with this volume of biosolids that actually is beneficial? And um, we were doing some pilot work on the site down there about in-vessel treatment of prescribed solids, uh, prescribed waste rather, and realised we couldn't do that with the biosolids, but we thought about, well, what if we composted them? So we then went through all of the procedures to, okay, so what would that look like? How would you do it? What would you have to do? What would the investment look like? Um, what are, you know? And we worked out that the business model for treatment of most wastes like that, in particular things like septics, which are you know, ineffective and not a dissimilar sort of issue, um, it's all the, the charging regime is all at the front end and there's nothing at the back end. In other words, they charge you to take it away from you so their revenue is like a gate fee but they don't care, then it's whatever I can do with it as cheaply as possible to get rid of it. Now, I happened to go to a conference that talked about one of the major problems emerging for most um, cities is the burgeoning amount of green waste and that the green waste was becoming a problem because it's also something that was mostly being got rid of by landfill because the compost market, they call it the pallet market. So, you know, the 20 kilo bags of compost you buy at a hardware store, it's quite small in tonnage terms compared to what was being generated. So most of it was being disposed of in various forms of landfill. At that stage, was not economic for things like gen uh, electricity generation through biomass. It probably still isn't, I suspect. So um, there were two emerging um, environmental waste problems, Gibson Waters issues relating to um, biosolids, and certainly biosolids are an issue for most urban environments. And the bigger the city grows, the bigger their biosolids because all of the wastewater treatment plants create a biosolid format of some sort and, um, you know, the bigger the city, the bigger the problem. And then green waste is a growing issue at the same time. So 
basically we looked at, okay, so how could we use those two growing issues to create a better outcome? When we did the analysis, we worked out that the gate fee model um, is the wrong incentive because it just incentivizes people to spend the least they can on either treating, handling, or disposing of um, the waste product because they once they get paid to pick it up and take it away, so they're not going to get paid any more after that. So you know the business model is to minimise your cost structure. Um, and you know, I was of the view that we could you know look at um, how we might make that a positive. And in particular, how we would try and find an in-use market for any product we made so that we could, I guess, in a grandiose way, claim an integrated water result insofar as we were completing the cycle. Because um, rather than just dump biosolids on the land, our um, we as you might expect, applied a science approach and determined by trials that doing that actually strips nitrogen out of the soil. So the decomposition of untreated biosolids in farmlands actually a negative. Yes, you get rid of the biosolids, but they take out more than they put back. Um, that is actually which, which, incredibly unfortunate because it's a widespread practice to spread biosolids yes it is um in some circumstances if they get the decomposition right it's okay but in most cases when it's just spread around um we found in particular human bio biosolids waste um the way they were being applied is not particularly productive certainly you dispose of them but you don't do a whole, it wasn't doing a whole lot of good for the soil. And we, as Gibson Water, did some a lot of chemistry trials and soil trials and in, engaged a couple of um, well-qualified ag science people and said, well, okay, why? Well, clearly it's because the decomposition you know, was going on in a way that was not beneficial and it's reinforced by, and it's the model that is the end product of a business model where you get paid to pick it up and take it away, and there's no other income stream. So you automatically look to reduce any costs, outgoings after that point, because they're just you know eating away at any margin you have. So to make money, you spend the least you can getting rid of it because it's now, you know, now your waste problem, not someone else's. So it just sounds the like outcome it, was, yeah. go on. Okay. Sorry. So it, um, the, the point was, well, okay. So how do we complete the cycle? And the argument was, well, instead of putting, um, either raw biosolids, uh, onto soils or um, partially treated, in particular pasteurised, which is the sort of area the EPA was going because once it's pasteurised, they're happy there were no live viruses or things, so they don't care after that, if, in, in effect. Um, 
the problem is it still doesn't emphasize that benefit side of things that you're trying to go for. Well, more than more than that, it still hasn't decomposed. So you can pasteurize it without decomposition, in particular. So the the pasteurization is just enough to kill kill live viruses, but it doesn't actually decompose the the structure of the of the biosolids. So we looked at full composting and. I think to this day it's still a dark art, um, although certainly that site now has the process resolved. Um, we didn't six or seven years ago, and there was a great deal of work involved in being able to create a uh, consistent process because the only way it's done economically is to do it in, in large outdoor windrows. And... To do large outdoor windrows, you've got to put up with um, changes in elements, be it climatic change or wet weather or lots of um, wind or all of the above. As it happens, Gibson Water was fortuitous enough to have an incentive to find something to do with biosolids and a site and mindset um, that meant we could do it far away from people now, we, you know, it, it required going through a very large amount of approval processes with um, nationally and with the EPA. So it was no simple thing, but we had the basic legs there of a need to do something um, and a site to do something on that gave us a, a flexibility to play. And I was fortunate enough to have a board who were prepared to let us run some of that experimentation and you know, people talking about adaptive management now would be saying, oh, well, of course, that's the way forward is, you know, to be able to do experiments and, and learn and entirely true. So I, my comment is the holes in the cheese are lining up with the structure of integrated water management um, <laughs> in that viewpoint. So anyway, we did a lot of trial and error and, um, Started off small, and then it's certainly, you know, you can see, and if you went there now, you'd see it's grown quite dramatically. Um, but the point was to, the objective all along was to, to complete this, the cycle and have a useful product as distinct to simply be a site with something we were trying to then get rid of. So um, it's now... The byproduct has its own brand. Gibson Water owns the Revive brand um, and went about creating uh, a, system, a market amongst farmers. We did a lot of work with one of the research dairy farms um, on grass growth and milk production and then engaged with a well-known operator in the business of um, spreading fertiliser and came up with the process because we also were able to put 10 or 12,000 tonnes a year on our own farming sites at Dutson Downs, so that gave us an ability to actually physically check what was going on, check the benefits, identify issues, um, and tailor the product for real-world distribution. But Gibson Water does not want to and would have had trouble getting into the distribution business. One, it's not core, and we had enough fights with the fact that um, the whole operation is not core, 
but we keep arguing, well, we've got the buy sellers to get rid of, so all we're doing is an innovative way of getting rid of them. Um, but in fact, what we're doing is demonstrating a, a production of an end game product, which you know is significantly better than anything else out there with um, that has biosolids um, as a main ingredient. Resolves the biosolids issue with the prescribed waste issue with the green waste issue um, in a way that actually completes the, the life the carbon cycle. Um, we've got all the test results in to demonstrate the improvement in the quality of the soil, and we know the chemistry, so we can demonstrate all the chemical benefits. And as was always intended, now you can buy both the compost product. But you can also buy it with um, some NPK-type fertilizer um, added. So you get a quick boost, and then the Revive product is a slower, a slower, less dramatic um, hit from a growth point of view, but it's also much longer-lasting. And then um, now, um, the, of the last one I saw before I finished in June, was um, you can also order it with grass seed mix so that if you want to do patching on your pasture field, you can actually spread long-lasting you know, long compost with a short hit of um, super and uh, super phosphate in it and with grass seed to grow to patch up areas that it may have been affected by whatever. But the point being that um, everything that comes out of that product line now uh, finds a home and a useful home and a beneficial product as distinct to finding ways of getting rid of dump, uh, waste streams. Can you speak a little bit more about the process of the experimentation that you did and you know how, how long did it take to find that kind of perfect <laughs> product or the initial product? Three and years. Well, it was, it was about, so what's the end game here? And then as, we, as a problem came up, we worked out, so how do we fix that? Um, and how does it all continue to go in the right direction? We linked, as I said, with um, Ellendale. They're a, um, they're a research dairy farm, and so we basically did a lot of trials with them because they allowed us to put it on pasture and then uh, watch the difference in grass growth, and they also trial grass there. We had a number of um, farmers who were keen to try anything new because, um, you know, superphosphate is getting very expensive and some other product which, while it's not as quick six-week hit, it uh, is certainly beneficial to the soil and it's a lot cheaper and um, I guess gradually builds up the quality of the soil um, over a period of time that fertiliser doesn't do because fertiliser just provides a bit of a sugar hit Whereas um, Revive is more of you know more of a conditioning agent, um, so we had to we had to um, one demonstrate it does no harm, two demonstrate there was no ill effects from its choice of most ingredient, i.e. that it had biosolid basis and that it wasn't and a lot of that was a positive because of the experience farmers have in particular dairy farmers of, you know, spreading cow manure all over the place. So, you know, that's how they get rid of it um, as well. So, um, 
the principles were already there. We just had to extend the um, extend the application, which we did. And is, is so there, yeah. Is there a manual uh, or sorry. anything coming out of this, or is there any sort of technical documents? I'm just thinking about other people who might be interested in applying the same approach to address their biosolids uh, and rethinking how um, biosolids are being addressed. Well, we, we've actually, um, well, we they now, um, Gibson Water does, you know, it has had frequent uh, field days on site and has hosted a significant number of people um, who are interested. I myself had a lot of the, um, a lot of the embassy staff from seven or eight different Asian countries down and showed them around through it, uh, both the water factory um, which is the waste treatment plant and what happens to it. Um, there's not a there's not a, a river calf recipe book on it um, because um, reliably making compost really depends on you having uh, knowledge of the local circumstances because it's very climatic, particularly when it's out in the open. But you you know it's not hard to get an understanding of the process when you see the aerial pictures and um, there's a windrow turner, well, you know, everyone knows what they do. It's really just about adding the science of um, temperature monitoring and whatever the local requirements are because the EPA has a requirement for um, compost production. So you need to meet the 55 degrees for seven days and be able to log it and show it has. So a lot of it is material handling more than anything, because that's where the efficiencies come from. Um, because you're talking large volumes, so you've got to be able to, you know, costs are in handling more than anything else and screening and those sorts of things. What kind of large volume are you speaking about, just to get a sense of 100,000 100, tons a year. Oh, okay. And looking looking for, um, that's a, that's increasing all the time. Um, and um, given the need to dispose of more and more green waste, more and more councils um, uh, have signed on to contracts where they provide curbside bins for their residents to get rid of their green waste and their um, basically organic, so food scraps and all of the sort of thing, paper and everything that will decompose. And then most of that is now going to Dutson from, you know, almost all of the east of Melbourne. So have you seen other sort of smaller sized facilities or operations modeling? Yeah, yeah. The, you, yep. Instead of yeah, having it being centralized, I would think. There, there, there's a few. Um, the issue is there's, um, it's difficult to break the gate model, the gate fee model, because most of the operators um, in the industry, that's what they want to do because they want their money up front. They, they are more reluctant to get involved in a much bigger capital outlay. There's a few people doing it, um, but mostly they're doing things like instead of a windrow turner, and I mean the last windrow turner that I signed off on was $1.3 million, um, they use a bucket. Uh, on the front of a loader and stuff, yeah. so they're much smaller scale and and a little uh, somewhat more primitive. But the 
you can do it in a whole different whole pile of ways. You know, there's lots of options. It just happens that Gibson and Water had the need, it had the site, it had the determination, and it had the it could afford to invest. Um, there's nearly fourteen million dollars down there, sitting in uh, hard stand areas and way bridges and infrastructure to facilitate the processes because you do have to have all of the um, all of the governance to satisfy the environmental requirements as well as the procedural and processes to deliver the product on a reliable basis i mean there's a i've been down there one day and there was over 80 b doubles in a day B doubles the big trucks with the oh. big trailer on the back. Oh, bringing stuff in. Or yeah. bringing stuff out. No, bringing waste in. And I'm wondering if there's income coming out of the Revive product that goes back into supporting or paying off these investments. Um, yeah, it does. It doesn't. It it um it it is paid a fee for treating the Gibson Waters biosolids. But it's exactly the same fee that Gibson Water would have to pay if it wasn't there. So we treat it as a standalone, or they now treat it as a standalone operation, insofar as uh, it borrows money, borrows its working capital from inside the organisation, but um, it, it runs its own set of accounts, for want of a better phrase. And um, it's required to demonstrate um, not so much a it – it's not a financial return on capital, but it's got to pay its own way, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So it's, it's economic. Um, it makes a profit, makes a reasonable you – know, makes, it makes quite decent return on investment. Um, it's managed to do that. And it does so because the costs in the industry are designed um, without a back-end product. So anything you get for the back-end product is better than everyone else. So um, And the, the market is there for the back-end product and, and pays for it. So, you know, at the end of the day, that money then comes back into Gibson Water and is reinvested in the operation at the SOF and it won't be long and it will actually be paying dividends back to Gibson Water, which will then go to offset the revenue charges on the the, the rest of the customers of Gibson Water. It's, it's, it's a phenomenal success story. That's pretty amazing. Well, well it comes it, – I'm – I'm quite proud of and I'm protective of it, but it stands its own test. But when you think about the logic, yeah, you know, the organisation had a need, so we had to do something. Um, we were prepared to to take the process forward on the basis that we believed we could make it work. And um, there was a lot that didn't think we could, but we basically... Um, took it forward on that basis that we would resolve how to make it work. And it took us probably three or four years longer than we thought. Um, who doesn't find that? But at the end of the day, it's a, it's a functioning um, site. It's, if anything, growing. 
Um, and we've had to, I think we've now got four times the hard stand area we had when we started. And it's like, you know, it's million and a half or two million every time you want to throw down more hard stand. But you need the hard stand. We've learned a lot about materials handling, how to handle those volumes, how to sequence them, because they do have to be turned um, during multiple times during the um, composting process to get more oxygen into the exposed um, stuff that's been churned out of the middle. That's what the windrow turners are doing, and you also add water as, as part of the fuel. So, you know, we know a lot more about the chemistry than we did, and we know a lot about the process of handling those sorts of volumes. But the process, could you, you could pick it up and do it on any scale you wanted. Um it would take a. You would have to get your head around the local conditions, but there's no reason why you couldn't do it anyway. As long as you've got the green waste fuel to um, to effectively create the temperature to compost the biosolids as well as themselves. I'm, I'm also thinking one of the key elements that is leading to the success of this is being able to go to market and being able to have a product that people want to buy. Because I know that in certain cases, you know, there's been some wastewater treatment facilities that have developed struvite, and nobody's really interested in that product, even though it has a lot of benefit. So how, how did you go about developing that market and that market relationship? Um, well, basically because we identified what the market could afford to pay for it, compared to the other um, thing. Because there wasn't anything like it. That's the issue is there still isn't um, a lot of fully composted products out there. You get a lot of partly composted stuff. And when we came, when Gibson Water came into it, the market for the pallet market in Melbourne was like 11,000 tonnes a year. And we're talking about creating 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 tonnes. So it was clear that it would have to be broad acre demand. And so we then, as I said, we started the trials and, we, you know, we the organisation has a farming wing of its own. So we were able to, um, if you like, both conceive and then trial products on an area of our own. And so that was, you know, that was a big plus because, you know, you can do that in-house and manage the results yourself. But also I was fortunate to have a board that was prepared to allow us to do that. They could have easily said no, close it down. And But fortunately I kept telling them, and what are you going to do with the biosolids? So <laughs> there was an underlying need to do something. And if you add the philosophy, well, don't just fix it and make it a strength, it was logical for us to try and find a way to create a, a worthwhile product instead of just something that everyone just wanted to get rid of. And so, you know, when you've got those volumes, you can afford to invest a bit. Uh, and Gibson Water had the resources. I mean, it's got over a billion dollars in assets. So it's got the resources to be able to do that um, where we think the outcome is likely to be beneficial and the end game is beneficial one for society and two for our customers and that's uh, and three for the users because the farmers now have a product they didn't have before that they can have confidence in because 
again, it's got a major organization with a technical science-based capability that certifies the product. This is, we did it, we made it. That's why Gibson Water keeps ownership of the name because people know it's Gibson Water that has created the product. Great. I mean, th those are most of the questions that I had. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about this story or anything else that you'd like to just generally share with the audience? Um, no, not really. I mean, I, at the end of the day, the only interesting for me is I, you know, I do see that it's got a, that um, there is an opportunity for it to be replicated because I, you know, my understanding of a lot of cities, particularly developing cities um, in developed or you know, reasonably well-developed um, countries is they, they've got a biosolids issue and they've got a green waste issue of one sort or another. And certainly, you know, those two things, when they come together, give you an opportunity to look at what you might then choose to do. And this is a product that, and an outcome that, that sits well in its territory of farmers around it and the demand is certainly more than we could create. So that we could sell, sell a lot more revive than we can make. Uh, what I like about the application of, uh, of the whole system is that it sounds like you can really do it on a very small scale or you could do it at this sort of urban large scale um, as well. And I, I keep people, thinking, yeah. yeah. People do it with composting toilets. Yeah. Yes. Uh, on a much, much smaller product, you know. Yeah. So, yes, you can. The, the issue is you can do it in a distributed way with very large numbers of small sites, and you absolutely can do that. I mean, you know, Australians compost stuff in their backyard all over the place and are encouraged to do so. So, you know, there's lots and lots of people more than familiar. The issue here is doing it on a commercial scale, that breaks the gate fee business model by giving you a back-end revenue stream, but also um, creates a worthwhile product, completes the carbon cycle, improves soil, and turns two growing waste streams into a growing beneficial product. Um, you know, it's a no-brainer in hindsight, but... Um, making it work has been quite a journey, but it's clearly demonstrably working there. So um, good on it. You know? And it, it's what we envisaged it would be. It's taken a few years longer than we thought, but um, it stands, stands so far the test of time and more, I guess, demonstrates, you know, when, when you think about trying to integrate some sort of outcome that fixes a lot of small issues and aligns things that way because councils in Victoria having, uh, you know, the cost of getting rid of green waste is going up as well. So we have a growing, a growing market for what to us is a feedstock. And from the funder's perspective, I know that a lot of private institutions as well as investment, impact investment uh, opportunities are looking for these sorts of things, uh, these sorts of, approaches in order to solve problems, have some sense of return, and be this sort of long-term sustainable approach that continues 
in the background to, to grow and to, to finance uh, itself. So I, I feel like there's, there's a lot of synergies in terms of this approach, the shifts that are happening right now in the investment world, um, as well as kind of what, what, what sorts of outputs and outcomes you're, you're seeing. So a lot of positive opportunities. Absolutely. You, 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 yeah. you, you would like this to be your business, trust me. Um, on the economics of it, you'd be very <laughs> pleased. You'd be very, but you'd be very pleased to have this as your business. Fantastic. And, um, so you can, you know, it can, it can be made to work. So maybe you do have to align the holes in the cheese a bit. Um, and in this case, you know, we look forward and said, well, there's going to be more green waste of a problem, not less. There's going to be more biosolids as populations grow, not less. Um, you know, how can we complete something rather than just treat it? How do we make it a strength rather than just solve the problem? And that's exactly what the outcome there has been. And it's successful because it does all those things. I'm wondering if somebody would like to learn more or tap into some additional resources, if there's ways that you recommend that they can do that, I can, I'll put a link up to the ABC program about like the broader recycling that happens with gypsum water, but also if you have yep. any additional resources that you could share for people, that would be very helpful. Anyone can write to gypsum water or contact gypsum water itself. I mean, it's a public entity. I can't stop anyone doing that. What I'm not, you know, they, they, at the end of the day, they won't necessarily want thousands of people doing it, but certainly they've. It is. It has open days down there. They've had farmer groups through and all sorts of people through to look, and they're not. Um, they're not precious about the operation um, at all, and I expect that at some stage there'll be a significant commercial competitor. The difference will be that the commercial competitor will be looking to make significantly greater return. Uh, on capital than Gibson Water needs to do. So Gibson Water cost of capital would be significantly lower, but the margins are quite, you know, the margins are quite reasonable. And um, with that, I just want to say thank you. It was really great. Keeney is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Keeney connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at keeney.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more.